Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast for February 2010. This month's guests are both novelists, and both of them have recently published novels which reflect on the state of contemporary America. Both focus in particular on New York, and on the relationship between two male characters. But there, the similarities probably end. Peter Carey's novel, Parrot and Olivier in America, is set in the early 19th century, when America's democracy could still be called fledgling, an intriguing or worrying experiment to European visitors such as Parrot and Olivier. Jonathan Lethem's book, Chronic City, is by contrast set in the New York of today, albeit with some beguiling or dystopian twists of its own. An edition of the New York Times that excludes all mention of war, a dark fog that seems perpetually to hang over downtown Manhattan, a mysterious tiger on the loose which causes ever greater destruction, and an equally mysterious smell of chocolate wafting over the city and emanating from no one knows where. And one small corner of this cityscape, the run-down part of New York's Upper East Side, is where Chasen Stedman, a former TV actor, and Perkis Tooth, a wall-eyed free-range pop critic, spend their time in what Jonathan Lethem has described as a sort of perpetual episode of Seinfeld. Before we came to Chasen Perkis, though, I wanted to know more about Jonathan Lethem's own attitude to Manhattan. He is, after all, better known as a Brooklyn author. Well, you know, if you grow up in the outer boroughs, uh, you have the same relationship in a way to Manhattan that the whole world does. It's this distant fantasy place of aspiration and, and projection. It's the image that you receive in other media, and it's a skyline and it's a concept. But you also have this weird possession of it at the same time. It's three subway stops away. You can go there. You can, for the price of a subway token, which was, you know, 50 cents when I was a kid, you could go to Greenwich Village and buy a slice of pizza and walk around, you know, Washington Square. And it was yours, too. And you felt defiantly, obstinately proud of it. You know, New York City is one city. And so Manhattan belongs to me, too. So it was far away and close. And in a way, that doubleness, it it persists in my understanding of the place. I think Manhattan is a place that's both real and unreal. It's made up of concepts. It's a virtual place, and it's very prosaic. It's where people live their lives. It's apartments and neighborhoods and, you know, people plodding along the sidewalk trying to get along. So it's it stays a kind of a, a fantasy place even when you get there. That's maybe its signature. And perhaps a lot of British listeners will think of the Upper East Side where a lot of this book is set as being the area where you've got the museums and the park and you've got old money. Right. But that that's a sort of imperfect vision of it as far as this book is concerned. Yes, well, it's all true. And, and more than just the museums and the, and the old money, you know, of course, Park Avenue is where the most expensive apartments in the universe are, absurdly. Apartments that are, are like fortresses of privilege. But also there's Madison Avenue right running through it, which is the very, the name of it is the very symbol of, you know, the American dream factory where, you know, where the commercial dream is, is born. But you only have to go a couple of blocks east of there, past Lexington to 3rd and 2nd Avenues and, and beyond that. And you're in actually one of the real backwaters of Manhattan, a very kind of ordinary drab, kind of podunk neighborhood, one that's changed very little, despite how much money has kind of come to roost in New York since, you know, the 70s, when it was at a kind of low point, when I first came to know the city. One of the least changed parts of Manhattan, ironically, is this 
far east part of the Upper East Side, which has the same drab shops and a lot of people clinging to rent-controlled apartments. And it's not a very expensive place to live, and it doesn't turn over very much, and it never becomes fashionable. It's sort of an entrenched place. And I like this, again, this doubleness, that the the two things are in such close proximity. Those All those fantasies of power and money running along Madison and Park Avenues and the the uh, and in fact the museums too with the the strange you know kind of um, European ancient quality to a building like the Frick or the Metropolitan and then these very ordinary lives eking themselves out uh, so nearby. I wondered if you could sort of evoke how this book took shape in your mind. What what were the sort of seeds that right back at the start of it? Because it's a very big, broad canvas, an ambitious book. What what were the sort of germs of the idea? I mean, it's very it's very definite in my mind. I remember how I conceived it, and it was in two thousand and four. As as we, and I use the word we, advisedly, we reelected the Bush and Cheney administration, and it was a a terrible year for that if nothing else. And as a New Yorker, having lived through 9-11, you know, this is a book suffused in the anxieties, the, the depression, the hangover of 9-11 and what came after. I think I would never have wanted the book to address that event directly, partly because I think it's a very difficult thing for fiction to depict usefully. Anyway, my kind of fiction. But also, I wanted to write about, in a way, the denial of those events as much as I wanted to write about those events themselves. Because I think when they first happened, and I mean really the first days, it was a terrible, tragic experience in New York, but it was also very intimate and very tangible. It was literally a bodily experience. You saw it and you smelled it and you tasted it. And it happened to you and your neighbors and it happened to friends who'd lost friends. And it created a lot of very dark solidarity. It was a very intimate thing to live through. And then, of course, in in retrospect, within hours, certainly within days, it had begun to be turned into a symbol and it was appropriated for a kind of other purpose that had nothing ultimately to do with New York City. It was a kind of um, useful event. And by the time we reelected that administration to, in 2004, the sense of solidarity and intimacy and possession in the lives of many people in New York, I think, had evaporated. 9-11 didn't really belong to us anymore. It was turned into a, a, a banner under which distant wars were being waged. And that itself was very, very depressing and bleak. And it seemed to me it became a time of denial and you know, of course, denial and displacement has more to do, has to do with more, I should say, than the 9-11. It has to do with global warming and everything else that is intolerable to think about in daily life. And so I began to think about the intolerability of, of being aware of these distant forces. Things like a climate change, which are both everywhere and nowhere at once. They're, they seem impossibly distant and imaginary, and yet they're supposed to have to do with each of our personal lives quite intimately. And the way a city, the way a community, the way an individual goes on functioning and thinking about day-to-day things by pushing these larger questions, these larger clouds, these ominous clouds of the unapproachable 
truth of what's going on that you can't control, the way you push it to this to the edge of consciousness. This was my subject to begin with. Well, now of course all that sounds really ponderous and 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 like a very in a way a very dreadful subject for a book, but the cure for that ponderousness is also contained in the the notion itself because how do people carry on? What do they do when they carry on? When you deny the fact that that 9/11 happened or you deny the fact that you know we've destroyed the earth's atmosphere or you deny uh, the fact of a unjust war being carried on in your name, what do you do? You gossip, you play, you romance, you live your daily life. And so I thought, in a way, with this backdrop of distant horrors, that what should be in the foreground of the book should be like an episode of Seinfeld, an endless chaotic episode of Seinfeld. Manhattanites living in their solipsistic, giddy way, fascinated with each other, appalled by one another and gossiping, playing, making love, doing anything but thinking about these larger questions and their own implication in, in these larger questions. So I had this idea then that the book would be kind of a, a sitcom in the foreground with a, you know, a horrible kind of Goya, vast Goya canvas of war and, and, um, and witchery in the background. You often evoke a dark gray cloud which hangs over downtown Manhattan. And I, I wrote in my notes, sort of quite confidently, dark gray cloud equals 9-11. But of course, as, as the book goes on, it, it can betoken many more things than that. And, you know, you've just mentioned global warming. And, yeah. and also, I began to think about the sort of toxicity of the financial shenanigans that were going on. So I suppose, right. I suppose there, are many, there are many different it ways became, in which you can see the cloud. You know, yeah, as, as, as can happen when you're lucky with your metaphors, they can become these sort of all-absorbing concepts where you've invented something to stand for something else because you don't want to go at it directly. And it turns out that it can collect other meanings. And the, the Gray Fog certainly did that. I mean, in a way, it combines the event of 9-11 with the denial of the event in a single uh, shape. And it, that also leads on to the commemoration of the right. event. How how do you commemorate, come to terms with that event? Yes, well, I mean, this is very specific to the life of, of New York City, and not all your listeners may know this, but one of the strangest and most bitterly ironic things about the decade, almost decade now since, since September 11th, uh, 2001, is that the first feeling was this adamant wish to build on that site and make something glorious and, you know, make something better than the World Trade Center, which was always a building people were ambivalent about. And yet it remains this enigmatic, unresolved pit in the ground. I mean, almost 10 years later, it's as though there's some psychic wound that can't be answered. And so we can't solve the logistical problem of building something new in that spot. That's a metaphor so good that if I'd made it up, I almost would have been embarrassed by it. Uh, but it's true that there's still just this giant, you know, essentially open grave there. And in the novel, that is appropriated by a conceptual artist slash charlatan who has made a career out of, of basically digging holes in the ground and trying to impose some sort of meaning on them. Right. Well, you know, this is a part of the book that connects it to something in Fortress of Solitude, the film that, um, that the father is working on, this endless, impossible artwork and I guess I'm drawn in a, in a very, I'm, I'm, I'm both drawn and repulsed by the kind of high modernist gesture of making something 
unbearable, making something impossible, a book too long and difficult to read, or a, a sculpture too vast to contemplate. Or I was thinking, of course, of Richard Serra, who builds urban sculptures that are so gigantic and obnoxious that they destroy the civic life of the neighborhood that they've been inserted into. Uh, there was a thing called Tilted Ark that he built in Manhattan that ruined everyone's lunch hour. There used to be this lovely pavilion that people would go to to eat their sandwiches on their office break, the one little bit of sunlight in their day. And he built this kind of monumental, frighteningly off-kilter iron wall that destroyed this public space. You know, it, on the one hand, in a world where art has been rendered so often redundant or made to seem irrelevant, I'm very, very drawn to making something that's such a conundrum or so aggressive or so enormous that it will draw people's attention. I want to make art that would wake people up. And I, you know, I, I'm always hoping to be doing that. But I also think there's something perverse in making something that is itself like an act of violence or war or, or destruction. And so I kind of exaggerated this idea. You know, I thought about what if an earthworks artist like Robert Smithson, instead of working out in the desert where essentially he can't harm anyone what if there were was somehow an earthworks artist unleashed on new york city mm. making these titanic holes in the ground that you know became opportunities for people to commit suicide and you know uh it just just were fundamentally calamities almost as if he were a terrorist let's come down from that sort of top level <laughs> yeah. introduce me to you, you mentioned a sort of seinfeld kind of right. feel to it introduce um chase and steadman and Parker's tooth well, you know, Chase is uh, a character that I'm very fond of. I mean, it, it may seem in a way that I'm, w w if you describe him, he sounds like a send-up of a kind of callow celebrity. Or, or he's, al he's almost such a mediocre celebrity that he's, he's like a, he's a dupe. He's like a, he's like a figure in a reality television show that you, you find kind of pathetic for what they don't understand about the script they're, they're working within. But his sensation of being trapped in a script that is, you know, his everyday life is uh, an absurd and repetitious farce, but that he doesn't know how to break out of that is very meaningful to me. I think it's a feeling that creeps over me at times, and I think it's, I suspect other people can identify with it. You know, he's, uh, in a way, a sleepwalker or an amnesiac, but he's also Quite specifically, he's a he's an actor who's not sure when he's working and when he isn't. And in that way, I really do think he's like a character in a reality television show. And I, you know, we condescend to to the people who walk onto those stages and enact those strange, you know, Punch and Judy shows for us. But I I think they may be closer to representative figures for our time than we want to admit. And um, you know, and then in a very silly way, I here I am on book tour and. The temptation that's being offered in my own experience of trying to say something useful in my in my work, trying to express something that I'm feeling or, or, or suspecting, you know, it's not that I have some pronouncement I'm coming down from the mountaintop with. These books are fumbling explorations on my part, but then I do end up uh, walking around a bit like a politician or a mm. mediocre actor, kind of, you know, well, Ian McEwen has this remark where he says um, being on book tour is is like being an employee of your former self. And um, I, I'd, before I'd heard that remark, I'd come up with my own thought that it was, it was like being asked to play, play the role of yourself on, on a series of marginal stages. But 
it's not the same thing as as writing it. It's a it's a strange kind of uh, performance. And so some of Chase's dilemma comes directly out of the you know when I say he's a very mediocre celebrity, well that's that's what authors are in our culture. They're not real celebrities. They're 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 sort of pocket celebrities. You know, there's about four four rooms I can walk into on the planet where I'm I'm recognizable, and the rest of the time I'm just sort of some sort of uncomfortable name that people half recognize but feel guilty they haven't read the book or whatever it is. So I'm not I'm not a useful, you know, I don't have a useful amount of fame. I have just enough to be uncomfortable. Well that's I also think a strangely 21st century situation. It's it's what in a way blogging has made possible for every person. There's some room that they might walk into, maybe it's a virtual room where they kind of play the role of themselves. So everyone gets to taste that now. And then there's Perkis too. And you, you describe Chase as kind of amnesiac. And I suppose Perkis kind of yeah. jolts him a bit out of his amnesia. Well, Perkis, right. Perkis is another exaggeration of things I've known, people I've been and, and people I've loved and cared for and found exasperating and impossible. He's the, the cultural interrogator run amok. He finds meaning everywhere. He's a super interpreter. The way, you know, you might say of someone who has that problem with their tongue that they're a super taster. He super tastes everything, a book, a record, a film, a TV show, even his relationships. He's so prone to trying to ferret out their deeper, their secret meanings that it drives him and everyone he knows absolutely crazy. You know, he stands for that part of life where you have these inklings that there's more going on than, than you've been told that there's got to be some deeper reality than the one we're presently experiencing, which is, I think, a sensation that is almost universal. Of course, when it manifests itself in actual pursuit, when people, for instance, become conspiracy theorists, they're usually obnoxiously wrong. Very few conspiracy theories result in satisfying inquiry into anything, but their impulse, the initial impulse, that surely there must be more going on than, than, than meets the eye. That, I think, is a feeling you know, nearly everyone walks around with. I wanted to ask you what you felt the novel enabled you to do as a medium, which other media, because you, you know, you're talking about the proliferation of digital media and different forms of interventions, and yet you've chosen to write a novel. What, what is it that, that lets you do? Well, I'm a very traditional artist. I end up always in these conversations, whether it's about veins of fiction that I mine, you know, kind of magic realism or some would say postmodern fiction or conversations about pop culture itself, comic books, film, the internet, extremely contemporary things. I tend to play this role in life of outwardly this kind of super contemporary person, but I'm actually in many ways quite the opposite. I'm I'm a Perkis tooth. I'm out of time. I'm I'm deeply traditional. My commitments are to narrative in its 18th, 19th century form, I I love what only the novel can do in terms of depicting an extensive, creating an extensive alternate world of, of characters and situations and possibilities and playing them out in the narrative form and good old-fashioned storytelling form. I, I really, I, I sort of feel like I always end up talking about Pynchon when I should be talking about Dickens because it's as much in my mind to do, and this book is a very much a kind of attempt to, to think about uh, Manhattan in the 21st century the, with the same degree of kind of galactic embrace that Dickens makes of London in his era. 
taking on every bit of the high and lo- the low and the street culture and the the you know the different classes and the the sense that a city is a kind of universe unto itself that's where my my heart is and so my attraction to con- more contemporary mediums new forms is only an attraction uh, but i'm always seeking ways to ground it in my own form which is i grew up loving novels and stories more than anything and wanting to to write them adamantly i i could never imagine being so satisfied uh, doing doing anything else the satire clearly appeals to you i mean there's some some wonderful scenes in the book where you really skewer old money the, the pretensions and vacuities of power there's a mayor the mayor's and um, dinner party there's a, there's an edition of the new york times which comes without the war and right. You know, there's lots of little little barbs and also wonderful set pieces. So there was clearly a sort of satiric impulse behind yeah, some of it. Yeah, it's in there for sure. I mean, I think as one part of my affection for things, I tend to satirize things that have an allure. I don't usually trouble to send up anything I, I think is simply contemptible. And so the lives of the super rich, as well as seeming obnoxious to me, and, you know, in, in, in a kind of carbon footprint sense... Perhaps they're even worse than obnoxious. They're criminal, but they're completely entrancing as well. And they're mysterious. You know, what goes on at a party like that isn't so simple that I feel I can dismiss it. So the satirical impulse isn't a kind of, I hope, it isn't a kind of shooting a fish in a barrel, but trying to climb into the barrel and swim with those fish and see what that feels like. It seems like an exotic, another exotic universe unto itself. The way the world feels if you command that kind of money and access and 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 also the strange blinkered solipsistic in in some cases quite sweetly naive consciousness that accompanies great money and power because there are so many things that you can't understand from that perspective jonathan Lethem, chronic city is available now in paperback peter carey's new novel parrot and olivier in america is set in the early 19th century and told through two different voices, Olivier, the young French aristocrat whose parents survived the terror, and Parrot, the son of an itinerant English typesetter. This unlikely couple are brought together by circumstance and together find themselves in America as master and servant. Olivier is charged ostensibly with investigating the new democracy's penal policy, and Parrot is charged with keeping an eye on him. There are echoes, of course, of the real travels in America by the French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, but the voices of the two men and the relationship between them that grows from antipathy to friendship is pure Carey. As is Parrot's earlier life, which sees him taken willy-nilly to Australia. But as the title makes clear, America is a real focus of this book. So I began by asking Peter what it was about his experience of present-day America that had prompted him to look back at its past. You know, I've been living in, a, in, a, in the United States for 20 years. I mean, I'm a political person. I vote. I did fundraisers for Obama. I have two American children. And I'm also an Australian with an Australian passport. I, like many of the people in the world, I think with you know, the many things that were uh, distress me about our present life, and one of them is, is, is the, the total dumbing down of popular culture, which we see, or culture generally, which we see all about us every day. And I was also particularly concerned of the corrupt and, and, and very undemocratic 
government of the United States, uh, as we saw during the Bush years or the Cheney years, probably would be more accurate. And that led through to a situation where a person like Sarah Palin might possibly end up being the leader of the United States. So these things sort of obsess me every day. You know, I just go home and shout. I don't really watch television except as one news, current affairs show. I watch. Sit there and shout at the television, you know, which is like. And then I, re I, I read this, this book, which Americans know very well, but I didn't know at all, written in, in the 1830s by a French aristocrat who'd visited America, who was worried about these very things. And I got very excited. I mean, it's always exciting for me in, in my work, generally speaking. Uh, like a book like Jack Maggs happens to be alive for me because I see in, in reading or thinking about the past, I see the present vividly enacted. Mm. And suddenly, I, so here's this French aristocrat who shouldn't have known anything, really. He's 25 years old. He didn't stay in the United States for all that time. But among the things that he's really worried about are the dumbing down of culture uh, in a democracy. He had a great fear of the, the called the tyranny of the majority, which a term which I first coming upon feel great suspicion of. And he also imagines, you know, when looking at American democracy, the possibility of a moron coming to be run the country. And of course, at that very moment, I'm, I'm deep in that in real life. And so I took the trouble to, 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 to read his book and and then set out uh, to, to imagine a, quite a different journey from a similar sort of a character, the real life figure traveled with his aristocratic friend whose name was Beaumont and they wrote about prisons and they wrote about all sorts of things and they traveled around being French aristocrats together. So there I leave all of this because uh, I, I have in mind a sort of an argument, the sort of argument that might take place between a French aristocrat and someone like Parrot who's the son of an English itinerant printer and um, quite much more sort of radical in his politics, everything in his life in sort of seemingly the opposite of what the aristocrat is. And I, and, I, and I thought, how can I put them together? And how can I have a sort of an ongoing argument about the nature of democracy for these two people, which is at the same time full of life and energy and humour? And um, so that was sort of my idea. And then in the end, I sort of find out who these guys are and make them up a little bit at a time. And uh, I didn't, at the beginning, it seemed a hopeless task. How could I possibly imagine a French aristocrat of the 19th century? But I somehow found a voice for him. And when I found a sort of voice for him, then I knew I could do the rest of it. And Parrot, who I just read in a sort of an Australian accent, because it's, I'm not an actor, I'm a writer, but to make clear some difference. Olivia is also not a not a not a big stretch for me as an Australian who's in a generation in some cases and two generations in other so away from being British so and indeed was brought up by a partly by a grandfather who had never been to Britain but called England home on the back of the the book the adjective picaresque is applied to their adventures I wondered if you thought picaresque was a was a useful word if that if that captured some of what you were doing well, you know, I, I have to confess that uh, when I wrote Illywhacker many years ago and people said it was picaresque, I had to say, what do you mean picaresque? <laughs> and, and I think we've explained that the picaresque, the, the picaresque novel is a story of a picaro or a, a, a sort of a 
what 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 would we call him? Not not a not a, a, a not a villain, but a a tricky fellow, perhaps you know, and, and his and his adventures. And then there's a way in which one can look at a parrot, you know, in that light, and perhaps it perhaps it suggests a sort of character and, and the sort of nature of you know parrots' adventures. And, and, and leads you to, to, to expect energy and humour. I don't know whether it leads you to expect pain as well. I've got no idea. But I think probably in, in general it tends not to. Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. So, there, there is, so as well as, there, as, well as there's being, a, I hope, a great deal of, of humour within this and a great deal of sort of hijinks in a way, both of these characters are also carrying a, a considerable degree of pain. It is not in any sense a sad novel. But like in life, you know, people who are full of life and, and humour are often carrying a considerable degree of pain, and both of these characters are. Tell me about this sense which Olivier has very strongly of living in the shadow of the French Revolution, in the aftermath, in a period when he says at one point all the great men are dead, he's living in the shadow of his own family tree. Because that sense is quite profound that times have changed and He's got to find, you know, what his place in the world is. Yes. Well, he's in a very difficult position. He's in a he's in a difficult position in that way. But if I might go back a step, also before that, he is the child of survivors of the terror. So we know in life, I have three friends who are the child of survivor ch children of survivors of the Holocaust, and I know a little about the trauma and the toll that it takes through the generation. And it was that that made me think, what must it have been like to be the child of your grandfather's been beheaded and you know, you, both of your parents were that far away from, from, from being guillotined when Robespierre was got rid of. So I'm not a great apologist for the, for the, for the aristocrats of France at that time, but you're just thinking you're through your character emotionally. So that was the first thing I, I, I thought. This is a, this is, And it fitted with what I'd known about Tocqueville too, and her mother always sick, and him, him being sort of a hypochondriac, the doctor always being called for and so on. And then the other part is just sort of historically true of that class at that time. By then it's really clear, or it's, uh, it's clear to the smarter members of the aristocracy anyway, that democracy is not something that's going to stop. You know, the king may be trying to forget that it's there or that it happened, and they're, they're trying to roll back the revolution. But in fact, it can't be rolled back, and democracy will happen. And so the Olivier, Olivier character recognises that that is so, but he doesn't really, well, he's certainly very, for personal reasons, if you think of the family history, he's, he's terrified of the mob. Uh, the majority, the notion of the majority ruling for him is a horror. But yet he knows that there's America, and then in America which we forget now in America's you know, conservative imperial coat, that what a daring and radical thing that it was, that you know, America predated the French Revolution. Well, we know that, of course, but in a funny way, on a daily level, you, know, you sort of forget it. So he knows that this great experiment's taking place. So he's naturally thinking, how can I go forward? How can I be a human in the future? My family in the past have led countries and been... You know, and, and, and as a noble being born into my position, I would expect to have a huge role in the future of my country with the king at court and so on. But that's going to be denied to me now. So what can I do to take my place in history? 
And so America, the, the, the experience of America, the things that have happened in America are very interesting to him personally. And of course, there are all sorts of things that happen in America. Well, firstly, firstly it seems vulgar and, and, and coarse and those sorts of things. But there are other things which seem really rather exciting. And America is at once sort of exciting you know, he, th he sees no centralism there at all, which is not quite correct, and it isn't quite of the American future. But so, so somebody who's, who's felt himself tyrannized by by, by, by centralism, America's very, very attractive. And then there are things that, that, that are not attractive. And there's a woman who's very attractive, which falling in love uh, with someone can always change, change our views about so many things. And, and, and so he's goes backwards and forwards about America, but all the way, looking for a way in which this might work in France. Tell me a bit about Parrot, because he too has this challenge of, you know, self-invention. And there's been a, a period in his life in Australia where it seems he has invented a, a particular sort of self. But when he is then yoked to Olivier, he's back being a servant yeah. in an era where being a servant has become particularly uncomfortable. Yes, and I think, and I think also that Parrot being the strongly opinionated, sort of slightly sort of disrespectful, <laughs> slightly radical person that he is, wouldn't have really thought that he was really being a servant at all, that he was doing this for the meantime. He was doing it with some style and grace and disrespect, so everything was sort of fine. And a certain time comes uh, in New York where he finally has to confront the fact that this is what he has done with his life. He has allowed himself to be a servant. And all around him, there are people, his lover, and uh, uh, Mathilde, who's a wonderful painter, and other people. He can suddenly see that they've done these things with their life, and he's done nothing. He who thought he would be a great artist. So this is a big moment in, in the book and in his life. So in Australia, well, where he'd spent some time uh, by, by misadventure rather than being transported, Although, of course, physically transported, but not transported by a, a, a judge or a court. He had begun to make something of himself, and he was clearly, in my imagining of him, talented. He was in a place where not many people could teach him a lot more than he knew, but he was seen to be becoming one of those colonial artists who will be valued by history, I think. And then this uh, French marquis character who keeps on turning up, drags him away, you know, in the end, tricks him away from there and says, anyway, come to Paris and you'll learn things and you'll see things. And, and he allows himself to go. And, and, uh, and thus doing that loses a whole possible life that he might have had in Australia. He says at one point, I was a better man in New South Wales. And there's a wonderful, wonderful scene in the novel where he is confronted with the evidence of his former self. Mm -hmm. And Olivier is, is narrating this scene and he, he's kind of narrating it as comedy mm -hmm. and then then gradually it dawns on him what what has actually happened and that, that his servant does have this whole other life. Well, he, 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 they're, they're, they're in Philadelphia when this occurs and uh, there's a wonderful Frenchman who has an extraordinarily good library. Quite a surprise to, to Olivier who wouldn't have expected such a library you know, in such a place. And in looking through the books in the library, they come across, or Parrot comes across, the others are not really paying attention to him, comes across these engravings and cries out, and um, I did it, or something like that. 
and and and, and Olivia's first thought is he's his servant has spilt wine on the engravings and so and then the story comes out that in fact these particular engravings he Parrot had done and he'd done them for the Marquis and he thought they were going to a particular place and anyway here they are in a book and, and with not with his name on it but someone else's name yeah. on it and at that moment we learn a great amount about Parrot's history and what he's gone through to reach that place and certainly Olivier learns as you said a great deal about his servant there's, that sort of brings up the notion of of forging and fabricating, and there's a great deal of that. Those, I suppose, are are carry themes or, or interests. There's a lot of um, things going under the false names in this book. Yeah, there are. It's uh, you know, I don't know how to excuse myself anymore or explain myself or you know the question of what is true and what is not, what is real, what has real value, what doesn't. I stumble around in these waters all the time. Uh, Play in the waters, maybe it's better. There's a at, at the at the there's a map in um, this part of, of the book, which uh, is a real map, which I found, in which some artist in about I think about 1828, it's beautifully drawn and detailed, shows this huge sort of delta, uh, the delta of Australia up, which goes right into the desert of Australia. So it's as if in the northern part there's just all these waters and rivers and anyway, I found that particular map and I thought and I so I like. The notion of Parrot being commanded to produce this map for the Marquis for reasons we don't need to go in, into here. I like the way in which the map represented a, a sort of a wish. It's almost like a national wish of, of Australia and Australians. The way in which it could be used by the Marquis for sort of political advantage in Paris, because if that was true, then... And I just thought it was fun. There's this map, which we always believe maps so much. And you look at the map, everything's labelled. And it's completely not true. So, well, how do I explain explain you know, the mischievous sort of glee I get from that map? Mm. And it works thematically and it works in all yeah. sorts of other ways in the book. I don't know. Presumably you had fun with the parallels between the observations of Olivier, particularly in the New World and present-day reality. Well, yes, of course. I mean, one of, one of the ways in which one knows that experience is... Being Australian, one knows these two ways of looking at the world. And, you know, where, uh, where Parrot and Olivier are going to have two, uh, two different views, so the Americans are going to have a very different view of themselves to the one that these two characters have. And uh, growing up in Australia, one was very dependent upon the views of others, the views from outsiders to be endorsed by, you know, by an Englishman was very necessary for us. And, and uh, we would continually invite praise and and, and, and uh, we would get we would be very loud and we would be very boastful and and when people didn't like who we were we'd be very offended so and though that's not quite the same as the two views one grows one grew up with knowing that there were two ways to look at oneself you could look at whether the way that we liked to look at ourselves but there was this other view that we courted so it's not odd and also of course that's what novelists do all the time that, that we know that yeah, the truth is not simple that the truth is that there are, there's an argument going on there's the argument about the way the world works and there's a way that what it looks like and what it feels like and what it smells like and that's why multiple points of view is, 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 is satisfying to us but presumably plotting that was quite a quite a major operation having these two viewpoints and deciding who was going to narrate which scene so that it so that it all fitted together 
I think there are things that after after a while, after you've done it for written for long enough, there are things that you can do instinctively when you know what the story is. And I think I would say that for the most part, those sort of broad decisions were instinctive. But of course, that's to forget all the times in the book when you know the book's not working, when you you have this sneaky feeling that it's dragged on too long at this bit, or you have this worry about how you're going to get this other bit of the plot to fit here without, and so on. So, so to say it's instinctive is just too cute. For, you know, it is that, and then you make errors, things don't work, and you're forever uh, working at it to make to make the rhythms of the story and the different points of view work and of course the, the relationship between the two men is changing it's developing from one of yes. of animosity to to something much more close to friendship yes and that's then that's something that sort of seems fine in theory you know and in fact it's essential for the book that this happened and it was essential before i knew who either of them were at all but then when you're in the middle of it and you've set up the antagonism <laughs> You know where you know parrots calling, parrots calling Libya and Lord Mig migraine and 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 all sorts of snob nosels. I, I can't even remember lots of insulting names and and certainly you know Olivia would have parrot put in jail, and and they 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 loathe each other. So that's all working fine. That has a certain sort of humorous dynamic to it. But you you know okay I'm there now. But now I've got to get from there <laughs> to the next bit. How are we going to affect? Uh, their, their changed relationship and um, well reader I did it <laughs> I don't know um, but there are very well one of the things that I did was, was, was have, have uh, discovered he'd, he'd arrived in America and, and without any money and in fact the, the person who'd actually drawn up the financial instruments which would supply their money was none other than Parrot and Parrot had made himself a co-signatory so there was no way Olivia could put Parrot in jail, and so their the, their relationship really does begin with with, with the very you know the practical issue of uh, survival and money. Peter Carey, Parrot and Olivia in America is out now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast. But there's lots more information about both my guests' work on the Faber website at faber.co.uk, and you'll also find the podcast archive there. And do also visit the new Faber blog which you'll find at thethoughtfox.co.uk. The Thought Fox is all one word. Current highlights include the video diary of Faber's new poets as their poetry reading roadshow tours the country. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, so thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.